episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7 and, of course, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, where we go behind the lens and below the line uh, with film, television, music, uh, as we did a couple weeks ago with Alan, Alan Howarth, and on occasion, even, even literature and books. So welcome, all our regular listeners. Welcome back to our new listeners. I'm so glad that you've tuned in. We're in awards season, and I got to tell you, I've got a ton of great interview, exclusive interviews coming up in the next few weeks. I would love to start sharing them today. But but publicity has asked me to like hold off till after Thanksgiving. So over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing some really fascinating uh, exclusive interviews from some of the behind the scenes craftsmen, artisans, cinematographers, makeup artists. I can't wait for you to hear what Mark Coulier has to say about creating the makeup and the prosthetics for the upcoming Stan and Ollie classic film fans out there. Fasten your seatbelts, get ready, get this on your calendar. Stan and Ollie, opening later in December, is brilliant. For all you Laurel and Hardy fans out there, the film, it hones in on their London years, the final tour that they did uh, before Oliver Hardy got too ill to continue working, and Stan Laurel, uh, one of the greatest, This it is a love story. Folks, it really is. It's a love story. These two men whose lives were so inter- intertwined for so many decades. Um, and he never performed again. Once they stopped performing as a team, Stan Laurel never performed again. But he continued to write material for he and Oliver Hardy. Um, so hopefully later in, in the second half of the show today, we've had to juggle some stuff. So second half of the show, you're going to be hearing my exclusive interview with the Stan and Ollie director, John Baird. And uh, what a treat to talk to him and what a treat for him. Uh, I wish you guys could have seen his face as he talked about the film Stan and Ollie because he is a true Laurel and Hardy fan, as so many of, of you are out there. But yes, for all my TCM peeps, uh, and all you classic film fans, make sure you see Stan and Ollie. We'll talk about it more in depth in December, but heads up on that, especially since we're now get, later in the show, you're going to get to hear my interview with John Baird. But before that, what's opening on Wednesday? I've been waiting for, many of you have been waiting for, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Wreck-It Ralph is back, along with his bestie, his BFF, Vanellope. And uh, when we last saw them, they were happy and content and hanging out in Litwax Arcade. Well, it's six years later, and we 
as Disney all always does with a sequel, they up the ante. They up the ante in story, in characters, in technology. And I got to tell you, Ralph Breaks the Internet opening this Wednesday, just in time for the holiday weekend, puts the pedal to the metal for high-octane fun, friendship, laughter, and adventure, eye-popping visuals. The script is very smartly written uh, and very intelligent. The action is insane. And yes, you've seen trailers, you've seen clips with Disney princesses. I want Disney to take the princess scenes and just give these princesses their very own film because they knock it out of the park. Princesses really do rule, when, especially in this film. And what's so very exciting about Ralph Breaks the Internet and the princess sequences is that but for the original voice of Cinderella, Snow White, and Aurora Rose from Sleeping Beauty, um, because those voice artisans are no longer with us, all of the original Disney princess voice actors are reprising their characters. That whole sequence is fun in and of itself. And as I said, I want a film just with that because we see our Disney princesses as they're influenced by our favorite little uh, sugar rust racer, Vanellope. But through the whole thing, it is just heart. It is miles and miles of unbreakable fiber optic heart. Um, John C. Riley is back voicing Ralph. Sarah Silverman is back voicing Vanellope. Jane Lynch, of course, is back. Um, but what a film. I mean, following in the footsteps of what we saw with Coco last year, um, color is king. Um, this is, We have a celebration with aquamarines and purples. Not to mention, there's some great 80s fashion-forward uh, colors associated with Vanellope. But the, one of the cool things visually about Ralph Breaks the Internet is we have three distinct visual looks. We have the analog world of Litwax where the film opens. We go into the Internet, which is eye-popping and incredible. And then we go into the video game world with a video game, uh, an online video game, Slaughter Race. Three very distinct palettes and looks and even animation styling. Um, you have the softer look for the analog world. You have the, the bright eye-popping aquamarines, purples, bright whites. You know, Think of all of everything that we know on the Internet. You think of Twitter. You think of Facebook. You think of Google, Amazon, everything. And think of their logos and the colors. And all of this gets incorporated. And then you have Slaughter Race that is very gritty and grounded, but high polished and saturated and sharp. And it's really a beautiful visual palette. And also, we get a, there's a great vi visual metaphor that is created with the slaughter race, which Vanellope becomes enamored with. Um, because even though she's far away from home, it kind of has, you know, home is there, but the future is also at hand. Um, one of the great things is, is of course, the story. It's a coming-of-age story for Vanellope, but also for Ralph. Vanellope is looking for a whole new world, and she feels the tug of her BFF Ralph and the comfort of home. While, 
as she's exploring all these new things, like a wide-eyed kid on the internet. But then you have Ralph, and he's got to navigate the ins and outs of friendship because for the past six years, he and Vanellope have been BFFs. And the two, uh, the script is so well constructed, the dialogue so heartfelt and so authentic. Um, and we see growth in both characters, emotional growth, um, very much so in the character of Ralph and through John C. Riley's incredible voicing. The emotion that he imbues is fabulous. There are new characters introduced this time. Uh, the one that really stands out and is striking is a character, Yes, and she decides what's hot, what's not, what goes viral, and voiced by Taraji P. Henson, and she just nails it. You know, back again are our directors, Rich Moore and Phil Johnston, and at the recent pre- at the press conference two weeks ago, you know, they spoke about why, because it seemed that Ralph, you know, Wreck-It Ralph, every, the story wrapped up at that point. But on reflection, maybe it didn't. Take a listen to what they had to say. We thought it was going good, too. We did. Until we we looked at the very last line of the first movie, where uh, Ralph says, after going friendless for the whole movie and then finally making a friend, he's back home and says, if that little kid likes me, how bad can I be? And it seemed at the time, that's so sweet. It's a wonderful sentiment. But then as we continued to kind of pick at it, we said, well, that's really, really dysfunctional. You know, that this guy is defining himself by what his best friend thinks, you know, and, and it's a great best friend, but what if she were not to like him someday? What, what would that lead to? And so with knowing that he still had quite a bit of insecurity, he still had farther to go in his journey and then we'd only known Vanellope for like 35 minutes or 40 minutes so she has a whole other story so we had to had to keep going with these characters and keep going they certainly do and you know as I said the story there's a lot of great messaging here and not just about friendship about life uh, about truth and honesty and trust but also there's this is a great learning experience I was joking with one of the publicists at Disney as, hey, you know, grandparents, um, even parents unfamiliar with the web who see this film with their tech-savvy little grandkids or kids are going to learn about things like spam, bots, viruses, clickbait, viral, internet crashes, and, of course, cats and babies, because what's the internet without viral videos of cats and babies? Um, But... You really get, I found it quite educational on some of these certain topics because you get a picture image of what's happening that so many people, you know, of the older generation, even my generation, the baby boom generation, and then the the post-World War One and then into the World War II generation uh, that are now on the internet. If you can't see it or touch it, it's kind of confusing, but you actually get visuals here so that it becomes pretty clear what a lot of this stuff is, including the dark web. Um, So can't recommend it highly enough. But again, it's the technology that really has allowed them to up the ante here. Um, They're very, very, very cool effects, particularly with Ralph, a virus is introduced into the internet and 
it it basically turns Ralph into like a huge, it's an homage to King Kong with lots of little Ralphs all created, piling on top of each other. And this is technology that was developed a few years ago for Big Hero 6. Anybody that's seen Nutcracker and the Four Realms, it is also used there for the creation of the oversized Mouse King. The Mouse King in, in Nutcracker is actually, he's very adorable. But it gets really creepy when you've got, you know, 100,000 mice in these microbot formations climbing on top of each other to create a big mouse. Same thing, same technology, but even greater is employed here. So, of course, I had to ask our directors, Rich Moore and Phil Johnston, who tossed it to producer Clark Spencer to talk about the technological advances that came into play with Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yes, you right there with your hand, glasses. I think you're wearing purple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Periwinkle. How about a halo around? Dusty Rose, actually. Oh, oh well, congratulations. Nice to meet you, Dusty. <laughs> What's your question? First of all, congratulations. A great job, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. But this is going to, I'm going to throw this out to Phil and our 12-year-old director here. Thank you. Um, every, with every Disney film, we see new heights visually, which is attributable to new technologies. Here we get to see the King Kong Ralph get created, which obviously is now a further advancement of what we saw in Big Hero 6 with microbots. So I'm curious, what technology has come along that enabled you to do something here that you would not have been able to do if you had done the film any earlier? Clark, do you want to answer that? I mean, we, he, he's more articulate with these things. <laughs> well, you know, I think um, there's two things that end up happening. One is technology is just improving in terms of the ability to render faster, which is a big key component to it. The second thing with Kong Ralph, which is really interesting, we had to change our pipeline paradigm. We had to actually not let it be something that would happen at the end of our process, be, but have four departments come together to work in tandem with each other. So it was really the effects department, lighting, animation, and crowds who all came together to work as a team, which is outside of the pipeline we usually use. And then the third piece is technology came in and really figured out a way to make sure that the characters don't interpenetrate each other. That was going to be the biggest, most complicated part of it. We had, there's 50,000 Ralphs in that Kong Ralph, and to make sure that they don't actually interpenetrate in any shot that we're actually looking at. So there were many pieces of the puzzle that had to all come together to create that. And it's a story where the directors had this idea and the story artists pitched it. And then you wonder again, is it something we're going to actually be able to, to realize in time? And it was an incredible process to actually watch come together. Also, there are 50,000 in the close-up. There are 300,000 total. Yeah, I was just right. told the other yes. day. 300,000. Thanks for not penetrating me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look everything we had not to. <laughs> it was tempting. And yes, John C. Riley is always going to go for the jokes, beginning and end. And I adore John. I've interviewed him several times in the past few years, as a matter of fact. Um, so it's always a joy to see him. But my rev my full review. And more on Ralph Breaks the Internet will be out probably on Wednesday, if not tomorrow. But right now, I am so excited. I am thrilled to welcome my next guest, director Michael Kennedy. I am a huge fan of your work, Michael. Um, 
And to, to get to talk to you now about your new film, Hashtag Roxy, is a real treat. Welcome. Well, thank you. And I'm uh, surprised and um, happy that you're a fan of my work. That's nice to hear. Well, you know, I admit I, I have watched Kids in the Hall. And I am a loyal. Well, John, I have to. And I am a loyal devotee of the Good Witch series. <laughs> so, well, I was. Yeah, well, those are two um, kind of far ends of my career, but they're both shows I'm proud of. Uh, Kids in the Hall was a tremendous opportunity, and I learned a lot from them. A bunch of smart, fun guys. And Good Witch is one of my latest projects. Um, so, in fact, the TV movie I did for Good Witch just aired like two weeks ago. So. Uh, that's an ongoing uh, bit of love because that's a wonderful show to work on with a tremendous cast. Oh, well, and uh, I would get shot and hung by Bailey Madison if I did not religiously watch the show. I've known Bailey since she was about <laughs> five. Um, she she is, And she is a dangerous person, so I would. Yeah. I don't think she's speaking in metaphors there. <laughs> she will find you and she will kill you, so you better keep watching. I wouldn't miss it. If, I, I said the cast was really lovely, except for Bailey. She's a very mean, dangerous person. <laughs> you can probably tell by watching her that she oh, just it takes all my patience to work with her. I'll tell you, you know, at this okay. point, at this point, though, working with somebody like Bailey, she she is a veteran. Uh, I mean, she's done everything from Guillermo del Toro horror films to Good Witch and everything in between. And, you know, recent, this past year she did that incredible performance in Strangers Pray at Night. Um, so we see that well, she has that streak in her. So That's all true. She's a real pro, tremendous experience. And, of course, I was kidding before, she's an absolute oh. pleasure to work with. She's a sweetheart every day. And, actually, it's always a great pleasure from a director's point of view to work with someone who's so experienced and so good at what they do segue to Hashtag Roxy coming right here. Yeah. And therefore, the cast of Hashtag Roxy with Jake Short, Sarah Fisher, and Boo Boo Stewart as the three leads, they are three incredibly experienced and talented people who were just tremendous to work with. I mean, every day we had a ball. Every day I just loved what they were giving me through the lens. And they just were trim- they showed tremendous leadership on the on the whole production as well because they had to work really hard long hours every day and people followed their lead so I owe it all to them really well and I got to tell you I thoroughly enjoyed hashtag Roxy for me with as many films as I see and all the the you know now the the awards heavy dramatically heavy films that I'm seeing uh, for Academy consideration and awards. This was such a wonderful respite and of being light, but still tackling a really great story uh, that Tony Binns wrote. But then from a directorial standpoint, you elevate the lightness, you add in a lot of fun, and it really stems from the brilliance of Jake Short. I got to tell you, um, he is one heck of a performer. And you, you balance that with Danny Trejo, Trejo, who I wish we had seen more of in the film, because he steals each scene he's in. And then another mm. another actor that is relatively new on my radar, Pippa Mackey. She is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Out- yeah, she's a delight. It's probably probably the best uh, young cast 
I ever worked with, and I've done lots of films and TV shows with young people. This is probably the all-round best cast because it wasn't really like the weak element, which I sometimes have to really work around and show uh, my directing chops. I just had to point the camera at these kids. They were wonderful. Yes, led by Jake Short, who... Um, kind of like Bailey has been acting, I think, since he came out of the womb. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Jake, Sarah, and Boo Boo, okay, the three of them, like I said, they're in tons of scenes. They're working long hours every day. I never saw a piece of paper in their hands. They come to set totally ready for the day. I can do any scene, any time, backwards, and they're ready to do it. Wow. They were just tremendous. And um, they made it fun. They gave it a much higher emotional quotient than I was expecting. I mean, I went into this thinking, okay, it's a romantic comedy, heavy on the comedy. Mm -hmm. And as we were filming it, I realized it was actually heavy on the romance part. Mm -hmm. Uh, I give Boo Boo a lot of credit for that because in both the original Cyrano de Bergerac uh, play and stories and in the Steve Martin version called Roxanne, which people might have seen from the 80s, uh, the character that Boo Boo plays, the good-looking friend that the lead sets up to, you know, uh, woo the, um, the beautiful woman of choice through, with the help of, um, you know, the person who's really good with words, who's played by Jake, the Cyrano character. Mm-hmm. In the other shows, that person is of not much interest uh, right. to the audience. And in Steve Martin, the film is almost played as a buffoon, like a... But in our film, Boo Boo gave that role such heart like, it's heartbreak, actually, when you realize that he comes to realize that she is not for him, that he will never be good enough for her, even with his friend's help. Mm-hmm. It was very touching and added a whole new dimension to the film I wasn't expecting. So this film is much more emotional than I expected, mainly due to the cast and the tremendous performances. I highly recommend it to people. It's a wonderful, charming, romantic comedy with a high emotional factor. Well, now I'm glad that you brought that up because I have to say... I did not expect to see Boo Boo's character of Christian have the arc, the emotional arc that he has in here. And it's all due to this sensitivity that Boo Boo can bring to any role that he tackles. And it really, it really showcases his talent here as an actor, but it, it just elevates the entire film, the entire story. And I was so pleasantly surprised by that because, as you said, that character is always typically flat and dismissed in, uh, in other various incarnations of the Cyrano story. So I, mm-hmm. I, that really was a I, nice surprise. I'm glad you noticed that. that. That's what you noticed in watching the film was what I started realizing early in the shooting of the film and therefore decided to you know, nurture and encourage that whole thing. But let's step back a step and give full credit for that factor to Tony Benz, who wrote this wonderful script. And, of course, it's right there in the script mm-hmm. that, that the Christian character is, for the first time, really three-dimensional and a real, you know, um, romantic possibility for the Roxy character, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't work out. And he's actually very hurt when he realizes that it's not going to work out. And I also want to give full credit to Camille, the producer, because it was her idea, uh, it, this was her dream to do this film, because she loves this, she loves the original um, uh, story and the original play. 
and and she wanted to do this, and she really wanted it to be done well and done better than anybody else had done it. And I think she and Tony combined to really set me and the cast up to just kind of film what Genius Day had put on, in the script. Well, I, and I can't agree more. I mean, what Tony does with bringing the story to life in this in, in this iteration is, I have to say, it is one of my favorites. I am not, I was not, am not, will never be a fan of Steve Martin's Roxanne. It just rubs me the wrong way with the story and a lot of the elements that I feel it slacks on. Or, and in many senses, parodies almost. Here, the emotion is authentic. Each character is authentic. Even the supporting players, like Carter Thick, his character of Steve, uh, and again, mm-hmm. Pippa's character of Bronwyn, they're supporting players, but you know the character. They are fully fleshed out with very little words to an expository dialogue to set the tone. Um, it's and no, you're good. You're very observant. You know, you should do a show where you talk about movies or something because um, I like your take on things. Yes, um, Carter Thick did a great job um, playing the uh, you know the the um, jock, you know, the popular guy in the school, the, the, the football hero, and everything. Uh, Jake Smith, the friend, Lee did a great job. Pika was lovely. She added a lot of comic relief and a lot mm-hmm. of energy to her scenes. Patricia's and Tilly, what do you want for the mom? Actually, the only thing wrong with Patricia is she is too young and gorgeous. And I, at first, I couldn't believe that she could be um, Jake Short's mom. Yeah, of course, I... she's a great actress, so she pulls it off. She's one of the best actresses in Canada, and I've worked with her on both comedy and drama. And here she does a very wonderful job of adding some uh, grit and realism to the instances where um, Cyrus, played by Jake Short, gets um, seriously hurt and mm-hmm. ends up in the hospital. And, uh, wow, those scenes were very touching and almost hard to film, frankly. And then Hannah Duke as Deanna, the, the Sarah's friend, right from the beginning, mm-hmm. the opening scene of the film. I mean, these actors, I mean, look, this is a dream because I'm not the best director, but just give me a bunch of good actors and they start to make me look good. <laughs> so I'm just so happy. Well, I, I had to thank Camille and Eric every day. Thank you for giving me these people because they just make me look good and make my job just a pleasure. You know, and I'm glad that you brought up Hannah and, and her character because I love how you have bookended the film with <laughs> yeah. with scenes with her. Everything is, you know, the air quotes with the hashtag, um, yeah, like, good, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Nice throwback to Valley Girl days, uh, which is still... Yeah, it's very well done. And, and she came out of nowhere. You know, she hadn't done a lot of work prior to this, and... She just blew us away in the audition and then and turned out to be wonderful. In fact, I think we added her into some extra scenes during the shooting because we realized uh, how well she was uh, turning out. And this is a clue, then. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So people should watch the whole film, including the credits, mm-hmm. which has wonderful, it kind of has a kind of an outtake and a dancing montage. And then there's a kind of a denouement bookend uh, little scene with um, Hannah and Boo Boo at the very end. So watch the whole thing, folks, because there's charm right from beginning to end. Well, everybody knows that is one of my big pet peeves in life that, you know, I don't even care if there's not an Easter egg or or something fun to watch, you know, just like, you know, with the upcoming Ralph Breaks the Internet. You got to stay through the whole thing because there's something at midpoint of of the end credits and at the bitter end of the end credits. Here, we've got Mm -hmm. the same thing happening. 
And, I mean, Burt Reynolds was the first one to really start that back in his heyday. And But you shouldn't need those things to get the audience to stay because artisans and craftsmen have worked so hard on this film. Let's sit there and watch their name roll down those credits. But when you get some fun mm-hmm. little things like this, it's just an added bonus. And I have to, I have to commend you on your, your opening titles and your end titles. The use of color, the animation, playing on the whole idea of the Internet and text messaging. So it is so fresh and it's light. And that's something that really that is the word for this film. It is light. You have some heavier emotion in it, but you keep the film light. You never let it get downtrodden. And that's from Mm -hmm. the opening credit to the bitter end. Well, nice of you to say. Again, I have to say uh, the credit for that goes to uh, Camille and Eric, uh, and, and maybe we should mention um, the wonderful editing by um, Carrie uh, Comedina. So they did a wonderful job, you know, kind of um, wrapping it up. I mean, I was somewhat involved, but I think you'll find that, that the title and credit sequence is in the mosaic entertainment kind of mold. Mm-hmm. They're very good at that stuff. And, um, yeah, they did want to... It's both thematically correct with its internet and social media references and the graphics, and the color and splash of it sets a fun tone right from the beginning, which works well with our opening sequence, which is very ambitious. Shooting at a high school, we staged an actual rally with 500 extras, which was not easy. And so it's actually an example of how this is not a large-budget film, but it has a fairly big budget look mm-hmm. and feel yes. due to the tremendous improvisation of everybody and the producers and locations and extras casting and everything to figure out how can we give Kennedy 500 extras to do an opening sequence. And they did it. And I mm-hmm. had fun with it. Well, and I got to tell you, part of what makes this so appealing, and I've, I've got to ask you about working with your your cinematographer, John Spooner, and how the two of you actually developed the visual tonal bandwidth that you came up with and starting with that opening pep rally because that was a big undertaking because you're shooting floor to ceiling. You've got the second level balconies involved. You've, you're making use of what normally would be negative space on your wing areas. Really beautifully shot. And then you just carry this through the film with a lighter tone, but very fluid camera movement. So I'm curious what, mm-hmm. how the two of you came up with this tonal bandwidth design. Mm-hmm. Well, I can talk about it briefly. I mean, it was really lovely that they pulled John in for this film. I had not worked with him before. I'd seen some of his work. I wanted to work with them, and it turned out to be a great collaboration. John, like most Canadian filmmakers, or and I could say most specifically Canadian directors of photography, has shot a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. So that whole opening sequence, for example, that's all reality filming. I mean, we could have done it very simply with much fewer people and ha- added lots of crowd and lighting effects with CGI. But there's none of that there. It's all real. So we worked with the real space, what we really had. He augmented their lighting with his own lighting. You're right. It was a very ambitious sequence. We have huge lighting changes in the middle of a sequence. Yeah. With football players and cheerleaders and actors and a loom of 500 extras. And it was just ridiculous, but it did all come together uh, with John's very attentive experience to hand. And then, of course, that, that's just the opening. The main thing is 
these beautiful, dramatic, romantic scenes with their two or three leads. Mm-hmm. And they had to be lit in a beautiful kind of classic, uh, I wouldn't say romantic comedy fashion, because I think it's not quite that bright. No. It's got a little more of a dramatic lighting tone to it, which mm-hmm. I encouraged. I said, you know, this is not a silly film. This is actually coming off fairly realistic thanks to Tony's script and the performances. So I wanted the lighting to be also a little more realistic and believable and kind of set within its real space, not kind of like TV sitcom lighting, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it wasn't a um, big budget film, so uh, we usually just have one camera. John's doing the operating. You know, he had to work his ass off, frankly, to give it the look it is. Now, the movement, um, that's easy. I love camera movement. Uh, if it were up to me, every shot would be moving in every scene pretty well. And so we tried to use a lot of movement when we could afford to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's not movement in every scene, every shot, but there's a lot of movement. It gives it that cinematic look. Yeah. I wanted it to have a flow and certain scenes. I want it to be kind of like w- with a romantic float to them. And I think we pulled that off. I'm, I'm happy with the look. Oh, I think it's beautiful. And I have to say, one of the most striking scenes that you have is in the third act where Roxy is standing outside. You know, it's very similar. It will remind everybody, and even with the dialogue, it's going to remind everybody of Julia Roberts in Notting Hill. You know, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And here she is standing there in front of Jake's house with the sprinklers behind her, so she's getting saturated. And it's, you know, it's just past magic hour. It's a little bit dusky and dark out with some nice dark inkier blue behind. Absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous sequence. And to have the two of them closer and closer together to you get this beautiful uh, ECU of the two of them. Just wonderful. Well, I'm glad you like that. That, as you can imagine, was not easy to do. And, yes, we did shoot the wider shots at Magic Hour, and then we finished it off into night. But it it has a nice – it had to be the – as you know, complement or antecedent to a previous similar scene. I don't mm-hmm. want to tell the audience too much. Right. And it had to have the, a recall to the previous scene, but yet have its own look and feel. And even though we shot this in the summer, that water is just from a outside tap. So, you know, <laughs> poor Sarah is shivering, freezing. And um, we dealt with that, actually, because he says, you're cold. And she says, no, I don't want to say it again. But we, we used the fact that she's shivering, actually, in the scene. Those two kids, oh, my God, they did that take after take. Oh, my God. She's standing there freezing, and I think every take got more emotional and more heartbreaking, you know. So um, I just got to hand it to Sarah and Boo Boo. They just were so wonderful. I, I don't even want to say just so professional. Yeah. It's not, yes, they're professional, but it's got the magic, right? They, yeah. When I say action, and they just turn it on, and I was often mesmerized watching these kids. Sometimes they brought me to tears, and that doesn't happen often on a set. Well, funny, um, you mentioned Kids in the Hall. Kids in the Hall, um, previous um, people I used to work with, they used to bring me to tears with laughter during takes. Mm-hmm. So these kids brought me to tears because of the emotion of the scene. Yeah. They just absolutely touched me. So I highly recommend it to your audience. Um, I have to run now, actually, but I just want to say, check out this film. It's on iTunes and on Google Play and on Amazon. It's really worth it. It's going to surprise you. It's a very charming, romantic comedy that's got a lot of energy, and you're going to love these actors. Oh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have said that any better, Michael. I can't thank you enough for, for joining me today. I hope you'll come back on the show again. 
If you do a lot of talking about what a genius director I am, I'll come on every day. All right. Yes. Because I love okay. your work. So, but no, everybody needs to see hashtag Roxy because it, it, it truly is. It is light. It's entertaining. It's sweet. It, it tugs at the heartstrings and puts a smile on your face. Okay. That's a good wrap up. Thanks for helping us get people out to watch this movie. Thanks so much, Michael. Bye-bye. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was director Michael Kennedy talking about the movie, and it is Hashtag Roxy. That is the name of the movie because so much of the film, it really plays into the whole social media aspect today of communication of teens and, and everybody, actually. Uh, but a lot of it involves text messages that go back and forth. Um, so it's, it's a take on Cyrano de Bergerac. If you don't know what it is, I encourage you to do a Google search and check it out. And either before or after you see hashtag Roxy. So we are going to take a short break. When we come back, you're going to hear my exclusive one-on-one interview with John Baird, director of Stan and Ollie. We'll be right back. A powerful threat calls for a greater response. When there's a battle, bring strength. When there's a problem, seek answers. When there is doubt, give hope. Not tomorrow. Not in a few years. Right now. Some battles must be faced together. Cancer fighters stand up to cancer every day. And you can be part of this battle too. Visit standuptocancer.org to learn more. Together we can save lives. Welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And big, huge thanks to director Michael Kennedy, who was just with us talking about his latest film, Hashtag Roxy. Uh, and also getting in a few nods for my, for my pal, Bailey Madison and Good Witch, uh, which will be back on Hallmark Channel soon. But I don't know the, the exact date. But right now, Hashtag Roxy. It's on various platforms. It's on iTunes. It's digital. Find it. See it. It is well worth it, um, especially over this long holiday weekend. You know, it's it's cheaper to actually to rent from iTunes than to go to the theater, even though you should go to the theater, too, and see many of the great movies that are out there right now. But the next great movie we're going to talk about, it's not out yet. It is coming out uh, in a couple weeks. There may be some advanced sneak peeks popping up around the country, but Stan and Ollie, um, top of the show I mentioned, Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, they are undoubtedly one of the greatest comedy partnerships in movie history. Surpassed, I think, possibly the closest to that would be Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Um, They made over 107 film appearances, 32 silent shorts, 
40 sound shorts, 23 features, 12 cameos. I mean, they were unstoppable. Everyone has seen at least one of their films. Probably the two of the most famous are The Music Box, which is where they have the grand piano shot in downtown, shot in L.A., the piano going down the stairs as they push it up and it goes back down. And then another great one is Way Out West, where they do this hilarious little dance in front of an old western saloon with hardened cowboys and they just keep doing the dance over and over there's something that is a pure delight about seeing laurel and hardy Uh, i know every christmas for myself my father started this tradition when i was very young we would watch march of the wooden soldiers and then move on to disney's babes in toyland but always the first one christmas morning laurel and hardy and march of the wooden soldiers um Stan and Ollie focuses on Stan Laurel, Laurel and Oliver Hardy in their, in 1953, when they set out, they were doing a variety hall tour in Britain with the aim being to gain financing for a movie about Robin Hood that the two of them had been planning and talking and thinking about for years. Um, this was a precarious time. They hadn't worked together in a while. Um, Oliver Hardy's health was not doing well. They both finally, though, had happy marriages with amazing wives and who joined them on the last leg of their tour. The film, it just, it shows a true, this, this is, this was a love. This is a love story about these two men that devoted so much of themselves and the construct of the film is so beautifully done. Um, so without me blabbering anymore, take a listen to my interview with director John Baird as he talks about Stan and Ollie. Well, John, I have to tell you, this is masterful. Oh, thank you so much. Classic oh. film fans are going to go. The whole TCM crowd... They are going to be chomping at the bit over this one. That's good to hear. And, it, and as I said over to the reps, it's like, this is one of the greatest love stories ever told. Oh, it's nice, yeah. This yeah, yeah, is... Yeah, that's nice. You know, how did this script come to you? What I find, because I love Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. I grew up with a dad that... Yeah. Laurel and Hardy, Harold Lloyd. Yeah, absolutely. Buster Charlie, Keaton. Charlie Chapman. Yeah. And it was like, for me, Christmas tradition. And yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. this day, every Christmas morning, I watch March of the Wooden Soldiers with Laurel Great. and Hardy. Great. Well, it's funny because Shirley Henderson, who who's, who's plays Lucille, she's the same. She watches it every Christmas Day as well. She's got the same tradition. Oh, I, I, yeah. you watch that and then Disney's Babes in Toyland. That's it. And you're done. And you're done. That's Christmas. That's it. But I'm curious how, what attracted you to this project? Because for directors today, looking at something vintage and classic like this doesn't have the appeal. Yeah. Because you can't, you're not blowing things up. Yeah, exactly. Doing CGI. This is human storytelling. Well, it's funny you should say that. That's exactly why it attracted me, yeah? Because of that reason. And um, I, I have been lucky enough to be working with Mr. Scorsese for a little, the last few years. He's been a real mentor for me. I worked with him on a, on a show uh, that I did with HBO. And so I've got, always gone back to him and asked him, you know, what he thought on different projects. And I asked him about this and I said, look, 
I, I do, I love it, and my instinct really puts me there, but I'm, I'm kind of apprehensive because it's very simple. And he says, no, 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 he says, simple is the hardest thing to do. He says, that's the, that's the chat. He says, you, you can't hide behind the explosions and you can't hide behind, you know, these these fancy moves and stuff. You 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 have to be very honest. And so I said, oh, that's good. If, if, if you say that, then, then that's convinced me. So he kind of convinced me uh, that simple was, was the way forward. And, and also the times that we're living in at the moment as well, I think we could be doing with some simple humanity, you know. Um, so I think it's, weirdly enough, it's quite timely uh, because it's, it feels as though what the world needs at the moment is, mm-hmm. is, is, is old-fashioned friendship, love uh, story, you know. Um, but I was attracted to it because of that, but also because of my, like yourself, my love of Laurel and Hardy, which started as an eight-year-old kid back in Scotland watching it on TV. And I used to get dressed up as Stan Laurel at the school, <laughs> fancy dress parties. I've got a photograph of me as an eight-year-old dressed as Stan Laurel. Yeah. Um, so um, so it's been a long love affair with, with these two guys. But when I read the script, the script was sent to me, and my agent sent me it, and he said, I don't think this will be for you, because I had just done another movie, which was the polar opposite of this in terms of tone. Um, and he said, I don't think this will be for you. And I read it, and I said, this is exactly for me. Um, you did this after Phil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I did this after Phil. So oh, you yeah, right. You needed yeah. this. Yeah, I needed this. Yeah, exactly. So so pulls apart in terms of tone, and um, uh, and that's what attracted to it. And when I first read the script, the first draft of the script, I did cry when I read it, and I thought, oh, if I'm having this reaction to it, then this, this something's telling me to do this. You know, that's how it started. Well, you know, yeah. something that I, I truly, truly love with Jeff's script and with how you bring this up, your construct, is it's not just the relationship of Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. It's also the relationship between Lucille and Ida. Yeah. And you don't short shrift the wives. Mm. And as we see in that culminating third act Mm. in the performance in Ireland and you see him, Ollie's up there sweating and he's in pain. And the girls can see it. Yeah. But then when Ida just takes Lucille's hand, mm. I mean, yeah. you need boxes of tissues for <laughs> yeah. that scene. Yeah, it's lovely. It, it's it's. You know what happened with that is the very first draft of the script. The wives played a very s- small part of the story, and there were a lot more peripheral characters on the stage tour that were that were there in some of the acts that they used to perform alongside. And, and we and we managed to get rid of all that and bring the wives in. And the more we brought the wives in, the more interesting the story became. <clears throat> Even up to the point in rehearsals, you know, we would we would we, we built Shirley and, and Nina's characters a lot more and they came with ideas. So a lot of that stuff wasn't on the page and, and, and it was it was it was it was built by them, especially coming to me and saying, We've got this idea and Nina would say got this great idea that, that she really doesn't like Delphine, you know, and she, she does, you know, because he, he's putting them in all these small theatres and stuff and she holds a grudge and stuff. And a lot of that comedy just came from them building building stuff on, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but I think, yeah, I think this, I think it is as strong, that storyline is as strong as the one with, with, with the boys themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and I think I, if you didn't have that, it wouldn't be the same film. You know? No, and of course, this is a tour de force performance by Nina. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, wow. Amazing, right? 
I never would have even thought of her for this well, role. I mean, you're casting well, across the board from John and Steve to Shirley yeah. to Nina. Danny Houston yeah. is Hal Roach. You yeah. got that Hollywood well, royalty in there. Do you know what? I always use that phrase, and I'm glad you said it, Hollywood royalty. And he used to <coughs> tell us these amazing stories on set, you know, on the set of our film, on the way out west set. He would be telling us about stories he'd heard from his dad on the African Queens. Incredible, you know. So, Danny, even without knowing it, even off camera, was was putting us all into that old Hollywood sort of world as well. Um, Nina, yeah, going back to Nina, though, the reason behind that casting was I, you know, Ida was Russian, yeah, Mm -hmm. and I was very... um, uh, adamant that we should have a an actress of Slavic descent for that part uh, because I, f- I, f- you know, I had a lot of friends from that part of the world uh, and I knew a lot of people from there and they've got a sensibility of real tough love, right? Mm-hmm. It maybe comes across as quite brutal on the outside, but underneath it all you know, they're very sort of warm people, but they've got this hard exterior the Slavs, right? And um, so we went looking for an actress, and we, we, we just couldn't have put anything down. And eventually, we realised that Nina's parents are first-generation Ukrainian. So she grew up in a household, yeah? <laughs> she grew up in a household of... Uh, is that where you're from as well? No. Oh, sorry, I thought you were... I thought you were no, thumbs my, up for my that. family's... But no, that's, that satisfies your Slav. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that was where the Slav came from. And, oh. and you know, the, the, the humour and the accent and stuff, yeah. But it is. It's an incredible performance by her. She gets... To be honest, she gets the biggest laughs in the film. She's hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. And the looks that she gives, her face yeah. is so expressive. Yeah. Yeah. And the looks that she gives, yeah. especially to Rufus, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. he's playing uh, yeah, yeah. I just... I yeah. was in stitches. Yeah, yeah. She, she's, she really does. I mean, she a lot of the big laughs come from that character. You know, come yeah. from Something that you do that I find just so fabulous is you very easily could have done shot for shot of the Old West mm-hmm. films. You could have done shot for shot of their stage performances mm-hmm. because it was documented. Yeah, yeah. And yet you and John and Steve didn't you keep the essence there how important was that to you and how did you go about in collaboration with the boys Hmm. in retaining the very essence and seminal aspects Mm -hmm. of the performances but then infusing it with something that makes it a little bit different and Mm. not just a cookie cutter yeah well all that was all a big collaboration with not only steve and john but we all the all the heads of department, you know, we sat down and talked about this from the very beginning that this shouldn't be an impression, this should be a, you know, this should be an influence, yeah? And um, so whether it was whether it was a photographer, how we constructed the short lists or whether it was with a designer or a costume designer or, you know, or, or with Steve and John, it, it, it sort of just all, it was like an organic thing where... The, we, we talked about it a lot and it just started to mould around there it wasn't a I think if it had been rigid about let's not be rigid if we were rigid about not being rigid then mm-hmm. it would have just been strange but it sort of seemed to flow and find its own place where we we found our own we found our Stan and Ollie as opposed to finding our Laurel and Hardy you know? mm-hmm. 
So, but again, like making every film, it's a collaboration. It's a big thing, and not only with the actors, but we, with every department, you know. Yeah, I've got to ask you about working with Laurie Rose, your cinematographer, yeah. because your cinematography, you have three very distinct looks in here. Yeah. You have your va- your vintage black and white, yeah. which is pure black and white. It's not sepia tone. Mm-hmm. It's black and white. Yeah. Then you have the period post-war mm-hmm. London, mm-hmm. Ireland with the great pallor in the mm-hmm. skies. And then you get that gorgeous technicolor fantasy. Yeah, 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 yeah. How did you and Lori go about working on your visual tonal bandwidth in creating this film? Because it's a definite through line. Yeah. And the pieces, while visually striking and different, Fit. Yeah, symbiotic. Yeah, we th- what we did is we we started at the beginning and we said right, let's set up old Hollywood with this, we you know uh, with a particular vibrancy and that's why we chose to do the opening shot in, in one and because uh, originally that was nine pages of dialogue set in one room yeah and then it cut to the interior of the studio and we said right we need to get this up on his feet so it all started to build organically again that. Um, you know, it should the, at that time they're at the top of their you know they're at the top of their game, so it should feel you know they're younger. So so the camera movement should have more energy to it. You know, the colours should be a bit more vibrant. The, the the music, the tone, everything should be should be a bit airier. Um, and then you cut to sixteen years later, and boom, you're you know you're not post-war England, and the camera moves move less because you know we're, we're older men who are who are struggling with health and. And and with you know with where they are in their career and stuff you know, um, things are a little bit more sort of confined with them. Um, so we, we were just trying to replicate in everything where Laurel and Hardy were in their journey at that point in colour, in movement, mm-hmm. in in lens choice. You know, again, Mr. Scorsese was very helpful for me and. In determining which lens to use at which particular what time. What did you yeah. use it with this one? We, what kind of lenses? Yeah. We used the Cook S fours. Uh, we used them, and uh, Laurie, Laurie sort of came to me with those guys and, and, and said, uh, and, and I had used the, those on films as well. I'd used Cook on. on you can on, never go wrong with a Cook yeah, lens. Exactly, and uh, great for the period, but in terms of the lens sizes, you know, or range, and, and again. Mr. Scorsese was very helpful in terms of this is what they were. In fact, he offered, it was a brilliant thing at one point, he offered to give me his hand crank camera that he has to use in, in a scene. And But it was too, it, it was actually, it was the wrong era. It was His camera was from the 20s, so it was the wrong era. So it would have been a great thing to put in there. But we, so, so we talked about this, and then obviously the, the, the hallucination, the, the fantasy sequence, yeah, was technicolor and obviously in the fifties at that point that's that's how it would have been and, and even more so is their imagination and it never happened and we never saw Laurel and Hardy in that technicolor you know right. you know but they would have imagined themselves in technicolor mm-hmm. you know um, so uh, yeah and and again just we we just tried to find it and be true always be true to where they were in the story at that point how they were feeling you mm-hmm. know so that's how it came around but. The great thing about Laurie is Laurie is a fantastic craftsman, but he's also a, a very good friend as well. And I need that when I when I work. I need people who are good at their jobs, but also who I can sit down at lunch with and talk absolute nonsense to, you know. 
or else go on recce's and just be ridiculous and be foolish and have fun and stay away in a hotel and just you know have a few beers and stuff like that. And Laurie and all my all my craftsmen were were like that. very much handpicked for that. You know. Mm. Well, I would be remiss not to ask you about Rolf Kent's exquisite scoring and the fact that throughout the score we always come back to the Peyton and Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is usually heightened by flute. Yeah, or yeah, something yeah, yeah, throughout. yeah, yeah. So I'm curious about your discussions with him in developing because, as you said, we've got high energy at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And then we kind of slow down. Yeah, yeah. But for that. Final Ireland performance. Yeah, we're back to yeah, back to it. Yeah, you know, we 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 really wanted Rolf because Rolf is one of the very few composers out there that can do this kind of tone. You know, which is, you know, he did it in sideways so so well. You know, in terms of it was a road movie, it was a buddy movie. It had. Uh, you know, elements of comedy, elements of drama, elements of sadness in it as well. So when I met Rolf, I realised he was at, he was the right guy because he could just he could dance on the edge, you know, of of, of that tone. And he was a big Laurel and Hardy fan, and he used the Cuckoo Waltz um, as a as a as a basis and instrumentation for that. And the Cuckoo Waltz, funnily enough, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Stan Laurel held, heard the Cuckoo Waltz, and he said. That reminds me of me and Ollie because you had a you had a really high pitched uh, woodwind and a really low dee, 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 boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. and and said it reminded him of the pair of them. Yeah. yeah, that's where it came from. And so we talked about all these kind of things. Um, and I flew over a lot to, to LA to work with to to work with Rolf and you know and to really sort of we recorded in London and stuff. But but no. Again, he elevated the film on a different level, like all like all good scores do. Yeah, you know, so. I, and I would, I would, I will never be forgiven by all my classic film readers if I don't ask you this: How did you go about selecting the Laurel and Hardy films to use? Great question. The film. Great question. I, that's out of you, everything. Do you know what that changed? That changed about two or three times. Yeah, it wasn't the way at West that we start. We started with Below Zero. Uh, the first time, and, and it was a completely different opening to that. Yeah. yeah, but what we found is, if we if when we used Way Out West at the beginning, it bookended the film with a dance. Yeah, so the, the whole thing went through a huge different machination of of choices. But Way Out West really, because it had the iconic dance, and, and and you could have used it at the end, and is a is a real dramatic sort of twist for what's going to happen to to all these. Is he going to get through this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that he battled his way through this dance for his partner, uh, and it's a very well-known, you know, visually it's a very well-known sort of dance as well. Yeah, um, so we did that, but we wanted to place, we wanted to place moments in the film that give, give a nod to some of the films without it replicating it. So, for example, when they're pulling the luggage upstairs, mm-hmm. uh, that's obviously you know a nod to the to music. The piano. Yeah, it goes back to the music box, right? So so we try to do that as well. So not only replicate films, but use parts in the films that we can make a nod to. So we, we experimented with a lot of that kind of thing. So it was really trial and error to see what would work best on the page, how it read, what people thought. But when, we went through a va- you know a variation of those. Um, but um, but certainly Way Out West was, was, was our key to unlocking the whole film. Mm-hmm. You know? And of course... I was just going to ask him one more. Go me, go, give me one more. Go on. 
what did you learn about yourself yep. in the process of making this film that you'll now take forward into your future projects? Um, I, what I learned most about myself was that preparation for me right, is the key for, for making a movie, I think, you know. Um, because what it allows you to do is allows you to be freer on set, yeah? I think if, you, if, you, if you're not prepared, when you go to set, there's chaos, and some people work like that, I can't work like that, I have to be prepared so that it allows me more freedom on set, yeah? Mm. And I think that's something that I will take on uh, using, uh, using enough rehearsal time. Um, you know, shortlisting to a point where you have got it, but you never ever have to use it because you should know it so well. You know, mm. um, it, it, it all comes down for me for preparation. Make sure the actors are happy. Um, what um, Walter Hill? Yeah, I met Walter Hill once, and he he, he gave me. The, I said to Walter, "What would what, what three what what advice would you give to a young director coming up?" He says, well, and it was kind of, it was like something about the gremlins because he says, I'll tell you what Raul, uh, what Raul Walsh told me uh, in the same period of my career. So this had been passed down yeah. the line, right? And he said, um, never sleep with the leading lady unless you're going to do it all the way through the shoot. <laughs> right? That was his first bit, right? This is what had been passed through generations. I've, I've never done that. Um, always change your shoes at lunchtime because you feel as though you're going into a new day, which was a brilliant piece of advice, yeah. And always let the actors choose their own hats, um, which is kind of said, give the actors ownership over their costume and do it. And I've really stuck to those three rules. And they sound simple and kind of quirky and weird, but great bits of advice for anybody who's, who's you know, who wants to hone in on something that, that will help them. It's those three things. Oh, my God. <laughs> Particularly the bit about the leading actress. <laughs> And that was John Baird, director of Stan and Ollie. And you can hear the enthusiasm in John's voice as he talks about this film. We will talk more about Stan and Ollie in December before it opens uh, with exclusive interviews with Jeff Pope, the screenwriter, and Mark Collier, who I would not be surprised if we hear his name announced come award in this award seasons for his incredible prosthetic makeup work that he did on the film. That is all the time we have for today. We will be back next week uh, with, who do we have next week? I'm not even sure anymore. The way things are, are juggling at last minutes with people, you know, on location and shooting and they can't call in. Uh, that, that was uh, today's show. What happened 10 minutes before we went on air. So that's the beauty of live radio. But until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>